0: Hi, and welcome to the pollsters. I'm Margie Omero, Democratic pollster with GBAO. And I'm Kristen Soltis Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So I see in your notes, Kristen. That it says, I need to see 1917 immediately. I know we have a lot of stuff, other like everything is on fire. But I just wanted to tell you, I have seen it. Not only that I have seen because Richard Madden's in it. So I know that's why you put that in there. (laughs) It's like they have it, it's like a movie punctuated by English men that perhaps the women watching the movie might enjoy seeing, basically, if they're into into guys. Yes. Or, right. Whoever likes a good kind of English man, if you just wait a little bit longer in 1917, one of them may arrive, depending on. Your personal preferences. but And not only that, I have now, like for some reason, Jules, my husband, has been getting like the screener copies of all the (laughs) Oscar-nominated movies. And so I feel like completely plugged into pop culture because I've now seen more than half of the list. Like Little Women. It's kind of changed my – it's like the first time this has happened in like well over a decade. So it feels like a really big – it's one of the more joyful things going on in Washington this week is the fact that I've seen, like, more than half of the Oscar-nominated <laughs> movies.
1: Like, that's kind of it. <laughs> yeah, I went out. I, I had never been to an Alamo draft House before and so drove out to an Alamo draft House to go see 1917 because they mm-hmm. had a big screen. I wanted to see it on a big screen. And, and it was just so funny because I, I think on the last week's show, I had said, oh, you should see it. I hear Andrew Scott is in it, who is Hot Priest from right. Free Bag. Uh, as well as Moriarty from Sherlock. So I was like, well, that's that's an appealing reason to go yep. if you're Margie. Yep. And then you've yep. got Colin Firth. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute. And now you have Benedict Cumberbatch? Wait a minute. Now we have Richard Madden. What is <laughs> going on? I know. I know. I know.
0: I know. It was quite also. entertaining. It was quite entertaining. Um, yeah. And like I have a funny – like Colin Firth, his dad I think was – like a professor with my husband's dad and there was this time, like I think Colin Firth like at some one point babysat my husband or something and like the dad was telling the other dad like I wish, you know, can you please talk my son out of going into acting or something. <laughs> there was some story around that. So like that I have, feel like I have the most tenuous of tie to Colin Firth.
1: My only tie to Colin Firth is one time I was in a lady's room next to his, I think now ex-wife, Livia Firth, and I saw her using a particular type of concealer and went out and bought it because I am a sheep.
0: <laughs> I'm a good. sheep who will follow anyone else. So That's good. That's like <laughs> good like recognition that you would say, oh, yes, I'm going to go. Like I would never be able to find whatever that is again. Like it would just never happen.
1: It was, well, anyhow, it doesn't matter. I, I think I even <laughs> remember what it was. It's fine. It's not a makeup <laughs> review
0: show all of a sudden. No,
1: no, no, no. So, uh, also, just for listeners, so you know, we are remote this week because I am out in Arizona, a state I said I was never going to return to after Scorpion Gate 2019. So, please let Beckett know I am on the lookout for stowaways. And if I get any more scorpions in my suitcase, uh, he will be the
0: first person <laughs> I am for.
1: He told after us after I scream again.
0: He told us he wants a scorpion themed birthday party next <laughs> <laughs> year. So
1: I love <laughs> how this fit like will never die.
0: I so know. Great. I know. Do you know it's a lot it's gonna be a lot harder to find scorpion themed birthday crap than it was shark themed birthday crap. So I hope I can get him off that.
1: Well, I'll keep an eye out here
0: Here in Arizona. Maybe maybe. maybe maybe in Arizona it's not a big deal. All right. What's happening besides all this garbage? Uh, so
1: we are rapidly approaching the early states in the Democratic primary. So we'll do uh, – 2020 check-in look at all of the piping hot fresh new polls there we'll check in on president Trump's job approval as well as Gallups analysis of how job approval has been divided by party over time you'll never guess when the most divisive years were for uh, America then we'll talk about the politics of the impeachment trial which started this week in the Senate and then it's the anniversary of the roe versus Wade decision this weekend will be the march for life in DC so we will check in on the state of polling around abortion there have been some shifts over the last couple of years so we'll discuss them uh, and then finally there is a royal poll no we are not discussing fave un faves of Mexit or things like that there is a new poll being championed by the Duchess of Cambridge and we will discuss
0: so 10 primaries now now about to happen and there is polling is coming fast and furious and I see a lot of people freaking out on Twitter. And there's been some movement, but is it dramatic movement? Is it going to, you know, is the movement going to change? Is it going to change? Should we be looking at national polls versus Iowa and New Hampshire polls? There's a lot to say here. So, I mean, first, I think the thing is noticeable when you're looking at like the 538 trend line nationally is the stability of Biden's numbers of where he is has like barely moved over time. It has been almost in the exact same spot for months. What has changed is kind of the rank order of two, three, four, and five nationally, where Sanders has moved up as Warren has inched down, Buttigieg has maybe inch down a little bit, but doesn't seem to have moved as dramatically as perhaps Sanders and Warren have over the last couple of weeks. And then Bloomberg on the move, you know, part of it is simply by being included in these surveys, you know, recently, in addition to obviously his ad buy. But in the early states, you see, you know, not a movement for Bloomberg because he's not competing in the early states, but some movement for Klobuchar, um, you know, a little bit, maybe in reaction to debate performances or... How people are viewing the rest of the field or the New York Times endorsements. What do you think when you're looking at this?
1: Yeah, I mean the the Biden stability is the story, I think, and and the downside for him is then that sets, you know, I, the the silly game that we play with all of these primaries is the expectations game. So I saw, I think this was an um, this is a Nate Silver tweet thread where he was saying that like, you know, a fourth place for Klobuchar in Iowa. Or even, like, a, a you know, low double digits w- fifth place result for Klobuchar in Iowa could wind up actually giving her a bigger bounce than, like, somebody who wins. If mm-hmm. the person who wins is somebody who's like, oh, well, yeah, you were supposed to win. Um, although I don't think there is a this person is supposed to win Iowa at this point. Both the Iowa and New Hampshire polls are so packed tightly And like whatever new and and they're also it's the the trend lines are all packed tightly. But that does not mean all the polls coming out are telling the same story. In fact, like individual polls will tell like wildly different stories about who is in the lead. But they're kind of so all over the place that the averages wind up making this look like a very tightly bunched field. But I think the Biden stability, I mean, it's it's kind of a curse for him because then you've got this expectation like, all right, you're the front runner you've got to win one of the two early states and there is no guarantee at this point that he will win one of the two early states. There's no guarantee that he'll come in second in these two early states. I mean, anything could happen um, because these folks are all so bunched together. So I'm fascinated by this idea that like a Klobuchar fifth place could in kind of the same way that Marco Rubio tried to claim that his really close third place victory in Iowa four years ago was like, hey, guys, I know it's third place, but it was a really good third place. So <laughs> I found it as a win and everyone else is like, I'm, sure. I'm sorry, Senator, I, not not really. But, you know, for Klobuchar, if she really does outperform expectations, uh, could that help her? One thing that I also found to be mildly amusing was I am... I only re- I'm only i such a fair-weather college basketball watcher. I promise this is not like a whole sports ball thing. But I, there was a brawl at a basketball game between Kansas and Kansas State this week. And it's become vaguely memed out there on the internet. Um, but uh, I saw uh, Luke Thompson, who's a Republican uh, analytics guy. He is a big Kansas basketball fan. And he had retweeted something about this is what happens when and it it, it mentions something about monmouth and i like and everybody losing their minds and i was like wait a minute did monmouth put a new poll out and it was because kansas had played like monmouth in some like cupcake basketball game earlier in the season it was like a a college basketball reference and as soon as I saw Monmouth and like people are upset I was like wait a minute where's that, the Monmouth poll <laughs> what's going funny. on oh no this is a sports ball thing I'm completely off track but right. then Monmouth did put out a
0: poll the very next day so and like aha I I know. It's like uh, Ariel Edwards-Levy did like that pop quiz on Twitter, like which cross tabs come from which <laughs> polling yeah. outlet. And, and and everybody's like, oh, yeah, we know that uh, everybody knew the answer to those, which is kind of like the most useless. Yeah, I got three out of four. So, I
1: think I'm I think Monmouth. The third one was hard.
0: Yeah, third one was hard. I spent a moment on it. And I was like, I think Monmouth and then and then but that was the one I would have. I would have – I mean, honestly, I should have just guessed and closed Twitter completely and <laughs> just not looked at it anymore. Um, the other thing that five thirty eight does, which I think is interesting because obviously it's easy to kind of, you know, ride the roller coaster of these public polls. Like, this one shows Sanders up. This one shows Biden up, you know. This one shows, like, a, you know, Bloomberg up or whatever or Bloomberg up more than where he was before. Five thirty eight pushed out something where they looked at the house effects of some of these different outlets, which I think is – is pretty interesting, and, you know, in in some places, when adjusted, it, the race narrows, and some of it, it, you know, widens a little bit, but I think it's, you know, a good reminder that these outlets are all going to have, you know, sh- they're going to vary, That also, they vary in how they assess the electorate, the electorate and who's voting is really fluid, these are primaries with, you know, turnout that really depends on what independents are going to do, it's going to depend on who shows up to caucus in person, it's you know, the people who show up to caucus is going to be different, you know, that's different than people who self-report that they're going to go in a phone poll. I mean, there are all these different layers to thinking about how, you know, these polls and how they reflect what's happening, in addition to the fact that the race is, you know, the race may be moving in some way, you have to, you know, add people on the air, coverage changing, and so on. Um, But anyway, so there's, there are a couple different places to go if you want to, you know, kind of look at with the aggregate, I think in the aggregate, it does seem a lot more smoother in in terms of, you know, slightly less fluid and volatile movement than if you looked at the, looked at Twitter, where people are just kind of, you know, careening from one public poll to the other. Yeah.
1: And and also, I mean, I think by having, I mean, because there's a lot going on behind the scenes of 538 averages, I don't know exactly how it compares to what is or is not going on behind the scenes of Real clear politics. But I mean, they do, you know, some of these trend lines look smoother than others. And a lot of that is just how much are you going to let an individual poll move things? And then how much are you, as the, you know, forecaster or analyst adjusting the individual polls themselves? I don't believe that 538 does any like, ah, it's Erasmus and polls. So let's adjust for their house effect. Like, I don't think they do that. So, you know, 538 is just, there's a lot more going on with their trend charts, which may be good or may be bad. I'm not making a, a value judgment either way. I, I still rely on both very heavily, but it's just something for the uh, average observer of these elections to keep in mind.
0: Yeah. And even the above average. And even very the above close. average. You know. <laughs> Maybe that's you. Everybody on this, like, you know, one of those things where are you an above average observer? Everyone says yes. So let's check in on Trump and his approval rating there is a lot going on right now, but his approval rating is you know the same. it's 44% approve. Um, it's kind of in that same band he's been for a while. Um, Rasmussen is recent on its list um, or like recently included in the average but but it's not um, just
1: Rasmussen CNN yep. and Economist both have 45 and 47 respectively
0: so yep yep, exactly. Yeah. This is, you know, this is where he is, despite, and we'll talk about some of the impeachment numbers in a minute. And, you know, at the same time, I think, you know, there's still some other kind of ways to look at the president's vulnerability. I mean, I should just pause for a moment, and I, I know a lot of folks read this and, and spoke about it. Um, in the New York Times op-ed, or their endorsement, I should say, in the primary, where they endorsed Warren and Klobuchar, one of the reasons they gave for endorsing two is... That polling was in tatters. So you couldn't really look at electability polling. Traditional polling is in tatters. I don't know if you saw that. Lots of people were going crazy over that. Um, Yeah. For a couple of things. I mean, one, you know, public polling has not really, I haven't seen a whole lot in the public polling designed to help us figure out which candidate is more electable versus Trump. That hasn't been in the public polling. You know, what you would do to figure that out is you would look at, you know, testing a variety of vulnerabilities of each of the, you know, Democratic candidates. You would test their traits, you know, with a general electorate audience, which we haven't seen. So you would see, you know, you would look at, like how they're doing in the vote compared to their favorability rating, how they're translating, you know, notoriety into support. I mean, you, there are all kinds of things you would do that, the you know, public polling is not designed to do or at least hasn't done. And so to say, well, we can't use polling to figure out who's electable because polling is in tatters, I think is, you know, not really a very fair assessment, certainly at odds with their own internal polling program, which, you know, they put a lot of resources and thought and care into. Um, so I find that a little odd. And on top of that, And this is not about Klobuchar specifically, but were they using or not using public polling to decide who's electable? I mean, there's been hardly any general election matchups of Klobuchar versus Trump. So it's not like, well, polling's a mess. So we couldn't, we just ignored what we saw. You know, there wasn't even anything to tell you, you know, publicly about Klobuchar's, you know, electability versus Trump. And now we have a new head to head where she's up three Against Trump, that's in the CNN poll. It's only the second time there's been a general election matchup of Klobuchar versus Trump. The other one was in December; she was up there too. But this is not about Klobuchar or her electability at all. But just you know that comment of like, well, we just couldn't use the polls because they're in tatters, just doesn't really quite make sense.
1: Yeah. So CNN put out a battery of Trump versus insert you know Democratic potential opponent here uh, polls and. The thing to keep in mind is that Trump is basically at 45% in all of them, which I do not think it is a surprise that that is also what they find his job approval to be. Right. If you approve of the job Trump is doing, you like him and you're going to vote for him, no matter who the Democrats put up. And if you don't like him, you're probably not going to vote for him or you're saying you're undecided. And so the only real difference between like, a Biden and a Klobuchar on this question is that more people know who Joe Biden is and more people in the Klobuchar question will say they're undecided. So I still think that you are right, that there's a lot of, and and frankly, not to like, you know, be a white knight for Bernie Sanders here, but I, there's so much talk of like, oh my God, Bernie Sanders, he could never win the White House. You know, a lot of talk that sounds very much like what Republicans, I'm sure you can go back and find audio of me, Four years ago, this time being like, oh, if we nominate Trump, he'll never win. Um, the the American electorate is uh, a complicated and uh, is a is a mystery. A woman's heart is an ocean of mystery. Uh, <laughs> the, the electorate is an ocean of mystery, and I so I think you know. On the one hand, we have these polls that, in my view, actually don't show huge differences in electability between the Democratic candidates. It shows differences in name ID, but does not show huge like, oh, this, you know, Bloomberg is getting 10 points more than Sanders. He's like this, just the swingable slice of the electorate is very small. On the other hand, that could argue for, hey, if if Biden is consistently two points better off than Sanders is, if this is going to be a one point election or decided on a razor's edge, then maybe you want every point you can get. So I I guess maybe I don't want to 100% dismiss it, but I just feel like the tone of the discussion around who is and is not considered electable on the Democratic side is not backed up by a great deal of polling. And the polling that we do have does not tell a story that is like, oh, there are wild differences. Yeah.
0: Right. Exactly. So if you're going to say, you know, we didn't use polling for this decision, that's, you know, that's fine. But to say we didn't, hit, so we we're looking at X, Y, and Z, that's perfectly, you know, that's that's your choice to do that. That's perfectly fine. But to say it's because polling is in tatters, well, no, wait, that's not really quite right because it's, you know, the polling is not designed to do that or you just, are you throwing out some evidence that says something else? I mean, it just doesn't really, as a statement, didn't make sense. So, I mean, I guess people maybe sometimes are looking at these questions about would you prefer someone who's X or Y, but that doesn't really... As we've discussed, kind of ad nauseum doesn't really quite tell you the whole story. It tells you yeah. just one piece of the story, but not the whole thing. And speaking of this kind of 1% piece and, you know, how views on Trump and the vote are based on approval rating and so on, Gallup does a kind of historical presidents in review kind of thing and shows that Trump has the largest gap, D versus R, in approval, presidential approval of any, you know, of any president really going back to 45, 1945, not he's president 45, but looking at his approval rating among Republicans, which is high 89%. It's not as high as he says it is in some tweets, but it's 89%. That's very high his approval is very low among Democrats. And so then that gap is larger than it was for other presidents where their approval with Republicans, you know, or the other party, I should say, was a little bit higher. You know, not high, but just a little bit higher. And maybe their um, approval with, you know, their own party was at the same, was the same level or a little bit lower. But so there's a real, you know, that gap is wider at 82% for Trump than anybody, than with anybody else.
1: Yeah. And this is... uh For me, the story is not just that Trump has sort of the top two slots with his second and third years being the largest gaps, but that they're trailed not too far behind by Obama's last year in office at 77 points is the gap between Republican and Democrats. Um, His fourth year in office, which is when he was running for re-election, is the fourth place one. Then the fifth place one on the list is when George W. Bush was running for re-election. So Mm -hmm. we know that election years push people to the extremes even more. Um, But we also I mean, this goes back to 1945. And yet of the top 10 largest gaps, they are all within the last, you know, two decades within the last three presidents. And so I think it also, I just wonder in the alternate universe where Hillary Clinton is president, is is the same phenomenon happening? It happened to Obama, it happened to Bush, it happened to Trump. In fact, I think the only reason you don't see the latter uh, two years of the Bush presidency on here is because at that point, Republicans had kind of started to sour on him, too. Right. um, So the gap wouldn't have been as large. But this is we may just live in an era where the honeymoon period doesn't exist and people are, you know, partisanship rules everything around me. Yeah.
0: Okay. well, on that joyous note, let's take a (laughs) break and then we'll come back to impeachment.
2: Okay, so we're back
0: and there's a lot going on in Washington right now. We have, you know, impeachment is happening. You have members on the floor presenting their case um, or defending their president, let's say legal team defending the president um, into the late hours. But the public polling shows, you know, a lot of consistency. Uh, Not a lot of differences here over time. You still have you know, eighty-four percent of Democrats, you know, saying that they support uh, removing the president. Eight percent of Republicans, forty-one point eight percent of Independents. These numbers haven't really, haven't really changed at all. Basically, they've been basically the same, you know, same place now for the last little stretch, right? So we have the the stretch before. Pelosi announced their impeachment inquiry where people, you know, didn't support removal and there were fewer questions. And then you had this like sudden flip once the conversation really started to heat up. And then it started to kind of narrow a little bit, but still you had more support than opposed. I'm on the kind of link here to 538's overall numbers. But then in this last stretch, right, since the new year, you have a little bit of a widening where slightly more like a majority support removal versus uh, don't support. But this gap is not wide. It's just widened a little bit from the stretch in the fall where it was a little bit narrower.
1: Yeah, and Republicans would say, well, hey, on the question of should should we remove Trump from office, which I think is just the... It's it's not questions that say, should he be impeached? It's just asking about removal. They would say, well, independents, only 41.8 percent of independents support it. So, you know, I think Republicans still view the politics of the issue as being on their side, that in general, they view it as being something that is not a super high priority for voters, the voters who are the most paying attention are the ones who are already have their minds made up the most. And so if anything, this will just further galvanize the president's supporters to feel like he's under siege, to feel like he's under attack. I mean, it is love him or hate him. He is raising tons of money off this for his reelection campaign. So I think it is still uh, in Republican circles up for debate whether impeachment is helpful or harmful. And I frankly think I hear more people say that they think this will benefit Trump in the long run.
0: Yeah, I'm sure people say that. I mean, here's the place where, and I I know that people don't always you know follow the twists and turns of the legal back and forth, obviously. But you know, there's a Monmouth poll, but there's also another Survey USA poll, and it, you know, it's going to depend a little bit on how y- you ask it. But it's you know something to keep an eye on, which is should we pre- be presenting new evidence or should we be you know calling more witnesses? This question of like are we adding, you know, should we be adding more information? And it was the subject of obviously a lot of votes, party line votes in the Senate this week. And the polls that I've seen, so for example, this Monmouth poll, and then there's another poll I see now, just looking up quickly, a Survey USA poll that shows even a majority of Republicans say witnesses should be uh, allowed to testify. A majority in the in the poll from uh, from Monmouth say the impeachment managers should be able to present new evidence that's a little bit different than the witness question, but 57 percent there, say, present new evidence. So in a couple different questions here, people want to see an opening up of the process. And so that's a place where Republicans in the Senate may find themselves, well, not may find themselves, currently find themselves at odds of where the public is.
1: And so that's why I think whether or not this is a top priority issue uh, or defining issue is, is the real question. I mean, there are plenty of issues where we've talked about polls on this show where, 90% 90% of Americans will support X, Y, or Z. But if it is not a very high priority, then doesn't necessarily matter. Senators can vote the way they think they want to vote, even if it is at odds with public opinion. They can vote the way they think they should vote and not let the polls lead them. And if it's a low priority vote, it, it won't necessarily hurt them. I think part of why this impeachment trial, so some of the ratings came out for how many people have been watching this, it was like 11 million people watched across all the different networks on the first day of coverage. But like, if you thought, okay, so Fox, for instance, had, you know, the most viewers at like 3.5 million. Well, on an average night, like Hannity gets 3 million. So it's, it's more people than normal. And will people keep tuning into this night after night, after night, after night, Uh, will people be focused on this? Or is this going to sort of fade into the background as Oh, it's just those people in Washington doing terrible things. And here, Pew has uh, done a really interesting analysis where they ask people, do you have confidence in Senate Democrats to uh, be fair and reasonable? Do you have confidence in Senate Republicans to be fair and reasonable? And then they sort of plotted out, Okay, you know, 36 percent of Americans think Democrats will be fair, but Republicans won't. 31 percent think that 31 percent think, oh, this is uh, Republicans will be fair, but Democrats won't. 20% are like, this is going to be a disaster. I'm not confident in anybody. And then only 12% of Americans are like, yes, I think this is going to be a trial where everybody conducts themselves well and we get new information. And I am confident that this will be good. Only 12%. So I don't really blame people for saying, I don't necessarily want to focus on this. If you believe that the game is rigged from the beginning, whether you're a Democrat who thinks, well, this is dumb and pointless because they're not going to. Remove him, or you're a Republican who thinks it's dumb because they think it shouldn't have happened in the first place, you can see why there just wouldn't be a ton of interest in this, even though it is massively historic with constitutional implications.
0: Yeah. I mean, the thing that was interesting about Pew, often when there's questions about, like, is government going to do a good job at X or Y, you know, Democrats want to give a little bit of benefit of doubt to the institutions than Republicans generally. I mean, obviously that varies depending on what we're talking about. This this crosstab here, you know, confidence about Democrats versus confidence about Republicans, and then also confidence in nobody, confidence in both. Obviously, more are, conf- are not confident in either party than are confident in both. But if you look at D's versus R's, like the subgroup of Republicans and how they answer these questions and the subgroup of Democrats and how they answer these questions are completely mirror images of each other. I mean, they are not like, you know, Republicans are just as likely to say that they're not confident in either party as Democrats are. Republicans are about as likely to say they're confident in both parties as Democrats are. And obviously, they feel differently about their own party and the other party. So that's, that's pretty interesting. The Pew poll, you know, showed again, we see this kind of, we've seen some of this before, but Pew, you know, has gone back to this topic, which is trying to look at illegal behavior, unethical behavior, removing from office, that so those are different dimensions, you know, different measures of obviously the same kinds of actions, but do we see different results there at a very, you know, pretty high, 70%, say unethical, slightly lower, say illegal, you know, definitely or probably Trump has done something illegal. So that's 63%, which is, you know, pretty high. And then should be removed from office, that's 51%. So, you know, it, it goes down depending on how you know, tightly defined your word is, um, but majority in all of those. And what's interesting with that unethical, you have almost half of Republicans. I mean, it's pretty evenly divided among Republicans between he's probably done something unethical versus probably not done something unethical. About a third of Republicans say he's probably done something illegal, two-thirds probably not. That's still pretty high uh, with differences by ideology there among Republicans. But I think, you know, the other piece of this is what does it mean for the Senate, Um, since obviously the Senate is now playing a big role, and what does it mean for control of the Senate? What does it mean for some of the senators who are up in cycle and have – that are kind of in the battleground and have, you know, tough races? And so there's just been a little bit that's come out over the last week or so, like who were the most unpopular senators, and the most unpopular senators include a lot of these folks who are – um, and this is within their state, right? This is not national. This is within their state, and this is morning consult. Are include some of the senators who are up and have top races. Susan Collins is considered the you know least popular senator in her state. Mitch McConnell's second, Joni is third. Those are you know the three like three of the most vulnerable. Senators uh, this cycle: Cory Gardner in Colorado is six, and Martha McSally in Arizona is seven, of the top ten. So you know those are other folks who are facing tough challenges. And then there's been a poll, Democratic poll done by Garen Hart, I mean by Jeff Garen, about um in Maine, suggesting that folks in Maine they may they may hold Susan Collins accountable, or at least that's what the poll suggests.
1: One thing that I wanted to just flag, if anybody from Morning Consult is listening, it looks like there's something a little bit wrong with these rankings. Not to, now that I have already sort of defended Bernie Sanders briefly on this podcast, defend Elizabeth Warren. It looks like there's an error on this chart. It lists Elizabeth Warren as the ninth most unpopular senator. But it looks like also she has like a plus 10 net fave on fave, which would make her more favorable than Rand Paul, who's at number 10. Um, So I feel like... Margie, are you seeing, am I? Ah, yeah.
0: Let me go to the thing and maybe it's been changed. Let's see. I went to the
1: link too, right before we started Uh, typing, and I'm very confused why they think Elizabeth Warren is unpopular.
0: Oh, I know why. I know why. It's going to be looking at just the percent unfave and not the relationship between fave and unfave.
1: Well, I don't love that, guys. Yeah.
0: That must be it, though.
1: Yeah, that must be it. She just has really high name ID. Your average senator does not. Anyhow, not to defend Elizabeth Warren, but. Uh... Yes, yeah, so we've
0: <laughs> dinged people on that before. The morning council is not the only person who does this, but we've dinged people when they just look at the percent favorable and they're like, aha, you have only 42% favorable. Like, okay, well, if you're 50% hard ID, then actually that's a great number. <laughs> yeah. you no, know, a 100% ID, that's not a great number.
1: Well, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about trends on what Americans think about the issue of abortion. Okay, we are back. So consistently, when voters have been asked, do you believe that abortion should be legal in all cases, some cases or illegal in most cases, legal in no cases, you know, the sort of four prong question? Um, majorities tend to say they believe abortion should be legal in all or most cases. Um, there are a handful of states where majorities say abortion should be illegal in all or most cases. And sort of geographically, they're probably where you might expect. They're sort of, you know, more southern states. And they're oftentimes states that will that you will hear about in the news with debates in the state legislature around uh, changes to the laws on the issue. And so they, you know, Pew has an analysis where they go through what the laws look like in all of these different states. It's Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, West Virginia, Louisiana, Kentucky, and Tennessee, Um, how they have all, in recent years in many cases, enacted new laws prohibiting, say, abortion during the first trimester, although some of these things there are asterisks on the chart because they are still being challenged in the courts. But what I'm more interested in is just these broad overall trends. So going back to 2000, Gallup has ask people, are you satisfied or dissatisfied with the nation's abortion laws? And this has generally been a pretty close question. Um, You know, who's up or who's down has changed a teeny bit, but it stayed pretty constant going from 2000 all the way really to about 2013. And then you begin to see a gap open up where all of a sudden dissatisfaction with the nation's abortion laws really begins to increase. And nowadays they find that 58% of Americans are dissatisfied 32% are satisfied. But now the question is, you can be dissatisfied two different directions. And helpfully, Gallup lets us know what percentage of Americans are dissatisfied because they want laws to be stricter versus wanting them to be less strict. And it used to be the case that if you were dissatisfied with the nation's abortion laws, it was much more likely that you thought they were too relaxed, that you wanted to see more restrictions on abortion. But that gap has really narrowed. And now 24% of Americans who say they are dissatisfied do so because they want the laws to be stricter. But that increase is really being driven by a now almost matching number of 22% who say they are dissatisfied because they would like to see abortion laws in the country less strict. This is Something that really stuck out to me is for a long time, it has been the case that the conventional wisdom around young voters is that they are more socially progressive, that they have more sort of views on the left when it comes to, quote unquote, the social issues. And I was always quick to point out that the data told a very different story about the way young voters felt about abortion versus something like LGBT rights. But this new Gallup data does suggest that the age gap on abortion is widening compared to what we have seen in the past, um, that the gap here now is, uh, you know, only 19% of those aged 18 to 34 say that they would like to see abortion laws are more strict, that they're dissatisfied. They think they ought to be more strict, while 35% say they are dissatisfied and want them to be less strict. Um, And then if you look for older Americans 55 and up, that's almost flipped the other direction. So this is the, the, I think the strongest piece of evidence I've seen that there actually is a significant age gap that is emerging on this issue with young voters sort of embracing the more pro-choice position. Uh, in in larger numbers.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's very much consistent, you know, kind of in the aggregate, the fact that there's been this surge on the left of people feeling dissatisfied and, and worried about abortion laws, you know, and you have a lot of action in a lot of states, right? I mean we talked about the Georgia law and, and other laws, Ohio, similar in other places, you know, a couple months ago. And we found in Navigator that that was an issue that like lots of people had heard about. It was one of the issues that people had been following the most and, you know, disagreed with a lot of these different state laws. Even if they didn't live in one of these states, they disagreed with a lot of these laws. So, you know, we talked about how people feel in some of the states where the laws are. But nationally, people, I think, are hearing about some of these pretty extreme laws, which when this trend of, you know, state legislatures and chambers really trying to tighten their abortion restrictions you know, what's happening in a state legislative chamber doesn't always make national news, but at sort of in the aggregate or, you know, increasingly these are becoming, you know, making a lot more national news. So it's not a surprise to me that these, the, the, these numbers are reflecting that, or it could be that people live in states where the states are much further to the right than than they are. But regardless, um, this makes sense to me, consistent with what we saw with Navigator and other work that I've done that shows that you know folks on the left are now you know seeing a and feeling and perceiving a threat to reproductive freedom that that's moving in that direction. Um, that's reflecting what's actually happening in a lot of these chambers.
1: So let's wrap the show by talking about a new poll that is being championed. By the Duchess of Cambridge. Kate Middleton, uh, as she's formerly known, has been out uh, doing a tour of the UK this week. And I was absolutely delighted to go click on my Daily Mail uh, <laughs> UK edition, as I do as part of my morning news consumption. Um, <laughs> judge away. Judge away, listeners, um, to see that she was going around it, that her initiative is launching a poll and bringing awareness to this poll and encouraging people to take it. It is being conducted by Ipsos Mori. So a credible pollster is behind this. Um, but it is an open poll and they are it is not just being done, you know, random sampling. They're really just sort of looking for I think it's an opt in come one, come all sort of situation, it seems. Um, And so you can go, like, for instance, I found on the, like, Sky News site, you've got a link to a story where you could vote. And, like, 40,000 people had voted in this poll. And it's just five questions. It's questions like, what do you believe are the most critical years for a child's development? You know, it'll say zero to five, six to nine, you know, something like that. And you can click. I think they're all equally important. But, you know, trying to figure out, do people – understand the real importance that zero to five has on a child's brain development and all those sorts of things. And then also asking questions, you know, what do you believe is most important for children growing up in the UK to have a happy adult life? Is it good physical and mental health? Is it good friendships and relationships? Is it access to opportunities?
0: Is it access to a good education? Boo, I don't like this question. I, I was going to say, sorry. Like,
1: because you may, you may think those things are all related. I don't know to what extent the Duchess herself was involved in the writing of the questionnaire, so I will hold her <laughs> harmless on this front. yeah. Um, But I do think it's cool that her initiative is – it is literally like, hey, everybody, take a poll.
0: (laughs) I know. I mean, it it is like, you know, making her accessible. You can give her – tell her your point of view, you know. There's a way you can weigh in on whatever it is you're thinking, right? So that this teeny tiny infinitesimal step is like making like a more – giving people some kind of input, making their voice heard to the royal family, I guess, I don't know. But these answer categories are kind of bogus. Like good opportunities, you know, access to opportunities, like what What does that mean? It can mean anything, right? I'm assuming it means economic opportunities, but does it Does it mean, but like it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really say. Good friendships and relationships. Well, friendships, one thing. Relationships could mean anything. Is that a relationship to your parents? That's different than a friendship, right? Good physical and mental health. I feel like those should not be combined. And also, you know, it would kind of swamp out all, you know, dominate over all these other things. Access to a good education, I guess, is is specific as far as this list goes. But even that's pretty big. But at least that is a little bit clearer what it, it intends to say. So that's my quibble with her questionnaire. I would send her a draft back with track changes and the title file named dash MO at the end. Survey draft dash MO to reflect that it is my... <laughs> edited copy
1: <laughs> So I am uh I am taking the poll right now so I can see what yeah. the rest of the questions are Sure Oh actually Margie stand what? by this question you're supposed to rank them I just tried to click one of the options ah. for the question and it's now telling me I have to click to rank from most important to least important Okay Well, now let me continue. I have ranked all four of those things. Okay, which of these statements is closest to your opinion? It is primarily the responsibility of parents to give children age zero to five the best chance at health and happiness. It is primarily the responsibility of others in society to give children age zero to five the best chance of health and happiness. Or it is the shared responsibility of parents and others in society to give children age zero to five the best chance of health and happiness. Okay. So, yeah, this is a... I mean, I'm not a UK citizen, so I'm not really sure if that's, and I'm not a parent. Hopefully this is not, I'm not like destroying their sample by doing this. Um, Question, how much do you agree or disagree with the statement? The mental health and well-being of parents and carers has a great impact on the development of their children. Strongly agree, tend to agree, neither agree nor disagree, tend to disagree, strongly disagree. Oh, I like that. Tend to agree instead of somewhat agree. Maybe I will adopt that if that's... If if that's not just like a Britishism,
0: tend to agree. I don't know. I it sounds a little. People might be like, "What is that?" That's a that's not going to translate to. American? I don't know. I don't know. Does it sound like just? I don't know. We'll have to see. This
1: is an interesting question. Question four: Which of the following is closest to your opinion of what influences how children develop from the start of pregnancy to age five? Mostly the traits a child is born with, i.e., nature. Mostly the experiences of a child in the early years, i.e., nurture, or both are both nature and nurture equally. Hmm. I'm really interested to see what people think about that. Oh, and then finally, this is the one I mentioned. Which period of a child and young person's life do you think is the most important for health and happiness in adulthood? So, yeah. And then, oh, there's an open-ended text box. Is there anything else you would like to tell us about your views on the early
0: years of childhood? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's okay. going to be a big hot mess full of open-ends. All right. <laughs> I'm
1: <am> not going <laughs> to contribute to the hot mess. Okay. We're <laughs> done. Oh, they did not ask me any
0: demographic questions. Huh. So I guess we won't be getting crosstabs. I, I think we would call this a viewer engagement tool, right? A, a fan engagement tool as opposed to an actual survey. Uh, I, I am interested in
1: what some of the results are, even though it is not clear to me how they will balance their sample or weight it or any of the above. On but the scale I from am into it. Good zero job. Zero
0: to, zero to 10, where zero is credit donkey and 10 is pew. Where, where would you put- <laughs>
1: I will not besmirch the good name of our friends at Ipsosporia on this one. I'm sure they know what
0: they're doing. Well, if you – I only have, you know, a bit of advice that what we learned this week, which is you can follow the royal family or you can watch Little Women or Parasite as a way if you don't want to watch the polls or you don't want to watch impeachment and you need a break, those would be my recommendations.
1: Well, you can find us on Twitter at, at The Pollsters individually at, at Margie Romero and at Anderson on Facebook or at www.thepolsters.com. Thanks. Bye.